threat of eternal condemnation because of our sin. Say, thank you, Lord, for that. I am saved from the threat of the eternal condemnation. It's a direct byproduct of my sin. Whereas redemption changes my status. Redemption makes me a child of God. So the two go together. I am saved, delivered from the power and the effect of my sin, and I become a child of God. So Ephesians is going to talk a lot about that. So we need to be familiar with that. But it's also important, we talked about this last week, because of its particular setting, the Ephesian church was a church that was born and grew and, and struggled in a very antagonistic environment. The spiritual climate of Ephesus, Ephesus was, was not friendly to the church, not friendly to the gospel. And there's some real, I think, lessons for us in that as well. Because we are increasingly confronted by a hostile spiritual climate in our country, and we need to know how to respond. So the Ephesian letter is important for us for that reason. So there's some really good reasons to be focusing on this letter. So let's go ahead and get right to the text. We're still in chapter 1. We'll start at verse 9. Paul writes this way. He, that is God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, that is Christ, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, referring to the Ephesian church, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Father, we thank you for your word and ask as we look to your word this morning, Father, our minds and hearts would be enlightened. Father, Paul talks about some pretty important stuff here. And it's not stuff that we necessarily deal with every day in our thinking. So we need the help and the enlightenment of your spirit, Father. That we might grasp it, incorporate it into our daily living, Lord. To lead the kind of lives you'd have us lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul covers a lot of ground in this section of scripture, this portion. And um, he writes some, some real principal, essential truths. Um, he talks, first of all, about the purposefulness with which he acts. God's act through Christ, God's actions through his church are not haphazard or accidental. God acts deliberately with purpose towards humanity. Putting it differently, God is engaged. The idea that God is not engaged in our lives, that things are just happening and that his attention is elsewhere, foreign to scripture, God is engaged, right? That's the first thing. He talks in verse 9 about, about the mystery of his will. He is engaged, but we might not always know how he's engaged. That's just a reality we have to live with. It talks about the administration suitable to the fullness of times. That tells us that his engagement is not always the same. God's engagement with mankind changes as is appropriate given the times we're in. I think all of us are prone, if, if, if we've had a significant experience where we've been in a tight spot and God has really come through, we go, oh, now I understand how he works, and then the next time we have a hard time, we expect him to work the same way. 
Well, I've never found that to be the case. God works in a way it's suitable in the times we're in based on his judgment. Until finally in verse 10, he also talks about the summing up of all things in Christ. So God's deliberate actions are working towards the completion of all things and the presentation of all things through the purpose, or through his son rather. The second thing, part of God's will, part of God's purposeful action is our obtaining an inheritance. And again, it's so important for us to recognize that this inheritance which we are going, we're going to receive, it's not off like on the side someplace. It is an essential core part of God's plan for us. And I think all of us as parents, if we're responsible at all, we think about what our kids will inherit, whether it's things tangible, whether it's, it's, it's things you know, cultural, the value system, the inheritance his children will receive, right? And then the third thing that we see is this assurance of his is deliberate, purposeful. Our inheritance being an essential part of his purpose is that that assurance is guaranteed with a seal. And that's what I really want to focus on this morning, this reference to a seal. I want to speak to those first two points really briefly, but then I really want to focus in on the idea of a seal, because the first point I think we kind of understand, working with purpose, working with intent, being deliberate in what we do. We certainly understand that. We certainly understand it being purposeful in providing for our children, but the visual of a seal, especially if it was used in the first century, is quite a bit different than we use it today. So I want to focus our, most of our time on that. So let's just go ahead and look at the text. First, these two key points. One, that God has acted and continues to act in a deliberate, purposeful way. He talks in verse 9 about the mystery of his will. He's referring there first and foremost to his plan of salvation. You know, it's easy for us, as you go back and you st in your study of the Old Testament, you go, how did they miss it? Because there are so many prophetic statements and there are so many clues, if you will, about the suffering Messiah, the suffering Savior. There's so many clues about the resurrection. We see so many clues, but of course, we're looking in hindsight. For those who lived in the Old Testament, even God-fearing, spirit-filled prophets still miss so much of what was coming because God works in a mystery. It's so easy to understand what God has done, you know, afterwards, looking back. But looking ahead, generally, I, I have found is kind of um, futile. Because God works in ways we do not understand. And that's why we have to walk and act in faith. Because God works in mysteries. Although prophetically foretold, it remained clouded until the resurrection. And even now, it remains clouded and lost to the unsaved. And then in verse 10, again, we've already talked about this administration, which is suitable to the fullness of time. God works in times that are appropriate. And his deliberate plan includes that we receive an inheritance. Again, last week, this relates to that salvation redemption distinction that we made, right? But our status is so precious. Our status is so, well, it's marvelous. Years ago, we used to sing the chorus, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Comes right out of 1 John chapter 3. How many are old enough to remember it? Behold what manner of love. Look, John wrote, what manner of love. The apostles incredulous at the possibility that we should be called, I look at myself, 
that I should be called a child of God. But it's true. And as his child, I have the assurance that I have an inheritance. I don't know what it'll be. I don't know what it'll look like. But I know that it's there. And it was a common understanding of the early church. Paul writes about it. You find it throughout the scripture. And take, for example, what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3. Rather, 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have an inheritance. And the best part is, it's an inheritance that's imperishable, will not fade away. I, I, I'm not big on, on men's jewelry, but I do have, besides my wedding ring, I have two rings that I wear. One was my dad's, was part of my inheritance from my dad, and this is my father-in-law's. That's why I wear them. I wear them because it connects me to my dad and to my father-in-law. I am horrible at losing them, Both. And I usually lose them before we go on vacation. You know, I get this idea that I can't leave it where it's supposed to be because if somebody breaks in the house, they'll look where it's supposed to be. So I put it where it's not supposed to be. And then I'm not making this up. You can ask my wife. When I come back, I spend the next few months looking for it. I set a record with my dad's ring last time over a year. You know where it was? Right exactly where I put it. It was the first place I looked for it when I looked for it, but I somehow... But see, even things like that that we care about so much, that we go to such great efforts, they can be lost. They can be gone in a moment. But this inheritance that we have from him is completely imperishable, will not fade away, and is kept for us. Ain't never going to lose it or misplace it. I am so looking forward. So we have this inheritance. And best of all, we're better off than Bill Gates' kids. Now, you may be a little bit envious. thinking, Man, if you're Bill Gates' kids, your dad's worth $130 billion, right? Remember the news? He announced it a few years ago. His kids are getting $10 million each. What a piker. They only get $10 million. He's worth $130 billion. Now, I don't know what they were counting on. I suppose they may have been counting on more, right? No. Their, their expectations were reduced. Our expectations can only be increased. You all know the verse, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him. So we get to use our wildest imaginations as to how great our inheritance will be, knowing that when we get to eternity, we'll be surprised at how much better it will be. So go ahead and imagine. Go ahead and dream, right? So we have this inheritance, right? We have proof of it. We have an assurance of it because of the seal of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I really want to focus on. Verse 13, Paul writes, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. We do use the word seal, right? But we don't use it like they used it. We used it, you know, in lesser ways, like jam, right? You got to seal the jam. I mean, that's important, 
But that's not like life and death hangs on it. Well, yeah, it could. But, I mean, we don't, we, we don't use the we have a seal on a document. We use it, but we don't really, really use it. In antiquity, they really used it. It was a huge, huge word. And so I, um, rather than just go from memory, did some research. I found it really interesting. Um, I turned to the work of a Dr. Rene Schipper. Rene Schipper, he's a professor of theology and linguistics at the Free University in Amsterdam, writes a really good article on it. And so this is just a summary. Um, these are nine specific ways the, the seal was used in antiquity. Um, if you, can if you can look, well, I just want to back up one quick second. He also, before he gets into this, identifies the three component parts which we should be aware of when a seal was used. First of all, there was the thing being sealed, right? Whatever was being sealed. So, for example, um, one of the ways the seal was used was if you were, a, uh, if you were an, an olive grower, right? Like part of my family, right? If you were an olive grower and you were shipping some of that beautiful, precious olive oil, right? You might use this big, you know, huge clay pot authority, right? And you would fill that with your olive oil and you put a wooden plug on the top and then you would seal it. Well, that thing that you're sealing, the item, that's, that's part of the picture of the seal. And, of course, the second part of the seal is the person doing it or the person responsible for it, the owner of the olive oil, the shipper of the olive oil. And then the third part was the seal itself. And the seal itself consists of two parts. There's the seal, whether it's a ring or a stamp or something with this three-dimensional thing that you can impress into the wax or the clay. That's the second part. So you have these three distinct components. What's being sealed, the person sealing it, and then the seal itself, right? And as these were incorporated into daily life, everyday life, there's these nine different ways that Dr. Shipper points out a seal was used in antiquity. And we need to be familiar with this in order to understand how Paul is using it in the text. So the first thing the seal indicates is ownership, right? So we have our big plate, the body, and it's full of olive oil, and it's sealed with a plug and then some wax around the top. Now, we think the seal is the wax, right? That's the, you know, raspberry jam picture. But what the seal really is is the mark embedded in the wax. So if anybody opens it, you know, the seal breaks and we know it's open. That seal is there first and foremost to demonstrate that that oil belongs to somebody. Don't be messing with it, right? That seal, that oil belongs to the producer or the merchant. Whoever had legal claim to it, that seal makes it clear. And it's funny because even if you don't recognize the seal, because there were literally millions of seals because everybody had to be unique. Don't two people can have the same seal because if two people have the same seal, they're useless. So you can imagine everybody that did any business had to have their own seal. Very unique, very distinct. So that seal demonstrates the ownership of the contents of the big clay pot, right? Um, the second thing it offered was protection. Now the seal itself didn't really protect anything, the actual physical clay or wax, because anybody could break it, right? And as I'm going through this list, let me know, let as scripture verses come to mind, because they should. When we start talking about seals and things, scripture verses should be coming to mind. Let your mind just kind of, you know, track that. For example, we talk about protection. When a seal was broken, the seal itself didn't really offer any protection, but breaking the seal would put you on the, you know, wrongly when you didn't have, the, you know, the right to do it. Breaking that seal would put you on the outs with whoever sealed it, right? So, for example, Jesus' tomb. 
should be the first place most of our minds go, right? Because Jesus' tomb, roll the stone in front of it, Pilate said put a seal on it, right? That would have been wax at both ends with a piece of string across the front, okay? Now, the wax or the clay they used didn't offer any real security. I mean, if they can move the stone, they can break the wax, right? So there's no physical security there. Where's the security? Where's the protection? Well, Pilate's seal, most scholars think it was Pilate's seal that was in the wax. If Pilate's seal is there, when you break it, you incur the wrath of Pilate. That's not something you want to do. So the protection was a byproduct, not of the physical seal itself, as much as who it represented. The authority, a related idea, right? When Pilate had Jesus' body sealed, he was expressing his authority over the body. He told them what they could do with it, and then he told them that they could... He gave them permission every step of the way, and when he sealed it, was an expression of his authority over the body. The body was not to be touched. The tomb was not to be opened except by his word. So the seal carried the idea of authority. The next one maybe is not as clear. Authenticity. Authenticity. Let's go back to our illustration of um, the, the big pot with that olive oil in it. Now, if you know your olive oil, you know that the most valuable olive oil is the very first oil that weeps from the olive when they begin to squeeze it. That's that really light, clear, light flavor olive oil that's the best and it's so valuable. Um, if you say to somebody, this is first pressing olive oil, and you put your seal in it, it better be first pressing olive oil. Because if, if the person that buys it or gets it from you opens it up and it's darker and the taste is stronger and there's a hint of acidity to it, they're going to know that you weren't authentic. You sold them something that wasn't what you told them it was. So the seal is the owner's statement of the authenticity that's in it. Now you can even apply that to Jesus' tomb. That's Pilate saying it's Jesus in there. So that's another reason to acknowledge without doubt or question that Jesus resurrected bodily from the grave because we have Pilate's word that it's Jesus' body they put in there. We'll come back to that one. So authenticity, the right of disposition. Whoever seals it has the right to determine when, where, and how the seal was broken. So the seal represents that. The seal also represents a certain amount of responsibility or obligation on the part of the owner. Let's say it is an edible product that's in the pot, and the seal is broken, and people eat it, and they all die. Some horrible disease. Who's that go back to? The owner. The owner had a responsibility or an obligation to see to it that the product inside not only was what it said that it was, wasn't harmful, right? The presence of the seal also made disclosure of the contents a personal matter. Now, in, in the case of commerce, you'd likely label it. But somebody could seal something in a pot or in a document, roll the document up with no identification and seal it. And boy, does that take us to the book of Revelation. That incredible passage in Revelation where the scroll is held up and all of heaven wants to read it, but no one is found worthy to break the seal. Now, is that meaning, I've always used to think about that in terms of what kind of seal was that that nobody physically could get it open? What a bunch of wimps they had there. No, that's not it at all. No one dared open it. 
go back up to the top one about the ownership, the protection, the authority, the right of disclosure. All of that is bound up in the person of the one who has sealed it. So the things could be kept totally secret. Maybe you want to ship a big clay pot and don't want to tell anybody what's in it. Don't have to. Don't label it. Just put your seal on it. Can't be broken without your permission, right? The seal also had the sense of finality. Finality. When you're negotiating a contract, no seal is necessary. The back and the forth, the discussions, the ideas, the argument, back and forth. But when an agreement is reached and it's put down on parchment and it's sealed, negotiations are over. It's too late to change anything. So the seal represented finality. Again, when they stuck Jesus' body in the grave and Pilate sealed it, he was saying, this matter is concluded. He was wrong. But from his perspective, the matter was concluded. One last one, and um, I only say this because it's in the list. Uh, Dr. Shipper's discussion of this matter was largely uh, of the entire culture, not specifically New Testament culture. And that is in the case of certain priestly operations. And this would not have been the Old Testament priests because they would have never done this. But in certain pagan religions, um, sacrifices were sealed. A seal or a mark was placed on a sacrifice. Now, there's no evidence that the Jews ever did that. In fact, reason would say they didn't because the whole thing they were looking for was to make sure that the sacrifice didn't have a mark. So the last thing they would have did was add one. But in certain pagan religions, which Dr. Shipper is referring to the whole, the whole of first century culture, that in certain pagan religions, a seal would be used to indicate that a, sac that a uh, sacrifice was pure. So we've got a lot going on here. Can we effectively summarize it? Well, in a way we can. In a way we can. We have a rough equivalent to the seal in our contemporary culture. It's when you sign your name. It's when you sign your name. Anybody remember the first time you bought a house? And you went to sign the paperwork, and they put that stack of papers in front of you. And think, oh, my God, I'm going to be here all day. Signing, signing, signing. But all those signatures serve a purpose, right? How about the wedding license? Yeah, that's a signature that counts, right? I, I, I really am always surprised by people that say, you know, the license doesn't matter. It's just paper, right? I was given the same response. You got any paper in your wallet? Can I have it? It's just paper. It's never worked, not once, but I think it makes the point. Right? The signature is important for all those reasons. I won't go through it in detail. But when we sign our name, we're asserting an awful lot of those things. When we sign our name, we're attaching our identity to a whole scope of ideas and concepts. We sign our name. It speaks so much of ourselves. Um, if nothing else, it means we put our integrity on the line. And boy, is that important when we talk about God sealing us. Have you ever thought about that? When you, when you, have you ever found yourself questioning God's good intention for you? Don't bother to raise your hands. We all have. Right? We've, I've done it. I've questioned God. Have you ever thought of what, what you're suggesting? If you suggest that, well, maybe God's not going to come through for me this time. You're, we're suggesting that God would violate his own integrity. That's not going to happen. No. When he indwells us by his spirit, which 
What does Paul say? If you have not the spirit of Christ, you're not Christ. Put an equal sign there. We are in, if, if, you've, if, you've, if you've trusted in the shed blood of Christ for your salvation, if you trust in the resurrection for eternal life, you are his by adoption, indwelt by the spirit of God. He has put his seal upon you and to violate that would be a violation of his own integrity. That is not going to happen. It's the same function as a signature. Yeah, we are sealed. It's a seal of ownership. Yeah, he owns us, bought with a price. Paul's clear on that. Doesn't fit well with our Western culture, our individualism, our self-determination, but we are nonetheless bought with a price. We are his. And therefore, under his protection, mess with me, you mess with God. That's a simple fact of the matter. And how God handles that is up to him. We're protected. Authenticity, God's spirit present within us is a demonstration that we are in fact authentically his children. That takes faith. I look at myself, I don't necessarily see an exact representation of a child of God, but the fact that his spirit is there represents to me that yes, I am authentically his child. We had a great discussion about adoption this last week in our home, and um, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, talking about adoption, but at least in California when I was adopted, they reissue your birth certificate. My biological parents are listed on my, adopt, on my birth certificate as my parents. I am authentically their child. My adoptive parents are on my birth certificate as my birth parents. I am authenticated as their child. And that doesn't begin to compare to the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me. Authentication. Disposition. Oh, that means I am totally at his disposal. That one's not as much fun. But it's true. I am at his disposal. He takes responsibility for me. That's nice. It kind of outweighs the disposition. You know. Yes, I'm at his disposition, but he takes responsibility for how things turn out. right? And disclosure. I love that one. The Bible says we shall be known, right? The true essence of what we are shall be known. Each and every one of us. Now, nobody knows me like my wife knows me. Nobody like my kids know me. But boy, are they going to be surprised when I get to heaven and they see who I truly am. But nowhere near as surprised as I am. I look forward in eternity to being pleasantly surprised at the me, the John that God sees. It's got to be better than what I see. Yeah. Disclosure. Finality. Yes! The document that made me his child, he signed. That's it. It's final. As far as he's concerned, there's never any questioning of it. Yeah, I can get excited about that. And as far as the last one, purity, I mean, I'd like to apply it, but we can't because it's a pagan idea. But it's on the list, so I gave it to you. Um, I think maybe the reason it's, it's not part of our list is because only one was truly found pure. And only one sacrifice was truly found acceptable, and that was Christ. That's why he has the claim that he does. In essence, the seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit upon us is God's signature on our lives. 
He also, in verse 13, refers to him as the Holy Spirit of promise that moves into the realm of the contract. We've already talked about that. It's been signed. He talks about it as a pledge of our inheritance in verse 14. That word pledge is an interesting word. It's a, it's a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word. It only occurs three times in the New Testament, and every time it refers to the Holy Spirit. It just means a down payment. I think most of us know what a down payment is. Most of us know what earnest money is. Most of us know what a deposit is. It's a little part. And what that tells us, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives today tells us is what we have is but a little bit. What we have is but the smallest part. You know, we spend so much time and effort trying to make life here perfect. And we fail. And we feel badly when we fail trying to make life perfect because we somehow think we should be able to. And sometimes in our frustration, we cry out the words of the old song, is that all there is? We look at our life and our disappointment and our frustration, our angst and our failures, and we say, is that all there is? Well, for the Christian, the answer is no. No. What we see, what we experience is not all there is. And ultimately, the text tells us this is to the redemption of God's own possession. Our stepping fully into that status that is ours as the children of God. Why is that so critical? It's critical for the Ephesian church because they were set in a culture that was incredibly hostile to their very existence. Riots broke out. I'm talking citywide riots broke out when the gospel started to touch the culture of Ephesus in the, first, in, in the first century. They needed to know this. They needed to know that God's hand was upon them and they had evidence of it. Well, our situation is not quite that extreme, but none of us knows what tomorrow will bring. And I think all of us would acknowledge that we are on the verge of days in our country which are certainly unknown to us and quite possibly dark. It will be absolutely essential for every one of us to know whose we are, whose seal we bear, and what that means. It will be life-saving information. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. As you wrote to this Ephesian church, Father, in the middle of their circumstance, Father, Father, things that were such common knowledge to them, I think, Father, are somewhat eye-opening for us. So I pray, Father, as, we, um, as we've heard your word and as, Father, as we would take the time to go back and expose ourselves again in our own quiet time of reading. As we look at these words on the page again throughout the course of the week, Father, these truths would find fertile soil in our hearts, Lord, that your kingdom might be established in us. Father, it's so much of a challenge for us to wrap our brains around the idea that you do, in fact, dwell in us by your spirit. Father, that sounds so quite literally alien to us. So Father, I pray just as, as a first step, open our hearts and minds to that simple reality that you dwell in us by your spirit. And that is why we can say, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Help us hold that as we go through this week and each week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.